Hi, it's Paul Coker here from Transform Your Diabetes. And tonight I'm here with Dr. Lauren Quinn. Um, Dr. Lauren is uh, lives with type 1 diabetes herself. She's a diabetes clinician. She's a diabetes researcher. She's a lady of very many skills. And she's also the lead on something called the ELSA study, which we're going to talk about in more detail. So uh, I hope I've done you some justification in that introduction there. Uh, Lauren, and you prefer to be called Dr. Lauren, Dr. Quinn, Lauren, how, how should I address you? <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Paul. Yeah, no, Lauren is absolutely fine. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm a, a diabetes registrar, um, and currently I'm doing my PhD um, in the ELSA study, which is screening children for pre-symptomatic type 1 diabetes. And we'll get into more of that later on. But yes, first and foremost, I've lived with type 1 diabetes for many years, and always uh, immensely grateful to my family who uh, provided support from a very young age. And and just told me to never stop it, never let it stop you doing anything you wanted to do. So for me, it was all because I felt I had that opportunity to live well with diabetes and had the support around me. I always wanted to go into diabetes care to um, give that to, to others who, who perhaps aren't as fortunate as myself. I think that's absolutely wonderful. I mean, I, I, as you know, I've lived with type 1 diabetes for 45 years, and I think that the landscape from my own diagnosis to now has changed massively, but most of it for the positive. But I think that we, as we've developed with technology and, techno and and we can start to measure things much more precisely, I think for many parents, it's brought about new levels of concern and worry that my own childhood wasn't plagued by. Um, so I, I love that you're giving this message of hope and encouragement. So tell us a little bit about uh, the causes of type 1 diabetes because even those of us that are living with type 1 diabetes I think we often get quite confused about well what caused me to get type 1 diabetes you know we hear all kinds of things you know it was chicken box it was months it was you know the latest one we're hearing oh it was COVID-19 you know, what's the reality what, what causes type 1 diabetes? Yeah, so that's a fascinating question, actually, uh, Paul, and it's not it's not a particularly easy one to answer. And so what we do know is type one diabetes is something called an autoimmune condition. And what that means is the body's own immune system attacks the pancreas. The pancreas is the organ in the body that produces insulin and that insulin is needed for everyday life. So the insulin allows us to take in the nutrition from our food and lead healthy lives. We can't survive without insulin. It's an absolute requirement uh, for people with type 1 diabetes. Now, in terms of what causes that autoimmune process to occur, um, what we do know is there's contributions from genetic factors and environmental factors. Now, the genetic factors are complicated. It's not it's not a heritable disease as such in that, you know, it's not autosomal dominant or autosomal recessive. But there's factors in, in the genetics that increase your susceptibility of developing the condition. So even if you have that genetic risk, there's not a certainty you will develop the condition. It's just it increases your the likelihood. So that there's genetic factors. And we know that families, so if you have someone with type 1 diabetes in the family, that does increase your risk of having type 1 diabetes in a sibling or in another child. 
Um, so genetics is, is one part of the story, but the other big part of the story is the environmental contribution. Now, the environment and how that interacts with genes is, is complicated. And um, there's been there's been dozens of studies following up children over many years to try and identify what is the good, what is the bullet that causes type one diabetes. And the reality is we've never found that bullet. We have uh, a few a few areas that are shown to associate uh, with type one diabetes, but um, it's it often varies between between people. And I think that uh, well, I know that you've written a. Uh an absolutely excellent paper about this on the link between association and causation and how, you know, I already mentioned things like chickenpox and mumps and, and even coronavirus being associated with type 1 diabetes, but we don't have any link that show that it's the cause. Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, yeah, we don't have definitive evidence that these factors cause type 1 diabetes, no. And also just quickly touching back on the genetics, I think that if I've understood the research that I've read, you could, I, if I had an identical twin, I've got type 1, but they would have the same genetics as me, but their risk of actually going on to develop type 1 diabetes is less than 50%. Yes, that's right. This is called concordance. So th what that means is similarity between twins. And obviously identical twins are genetically identical. Um, so if they don't develop diabetes type 1 at the same rate, that would suggest that there's environmental contributions. And exactly like you say, Paul, it, it does differ between series, but it's usually between 30 and 70% concordance. Of, so 30 to 70% of identical twins will develop type 1. Yeah. So... That really brings us on nicely to the ELSA study that you're currently working on. So you're already a medical doctor and you're doing a PhD on something called the ELSA study. So tell us what the ELSA study is and why that's important. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting time to be in, di in the diabetes research world. And I say that because um, we know type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition. And actually, type 1 diabetes, um, individuals may have autoantibodies. So antibodies are markers in the blood. Um, and these antibodies can be there for many years. 10, 15 years potentially, when a person is entirely fit and well, asymptomatic, but these markers are indicators in the future that that person will go on to develop type 1 diabetes. Now, I think a lot of people know about antibodies in COVID and they're known to be a good thing because it's shown your body has developed immunity to the, to the COVID infection or any infection, you know, all infection responses uh, generate antibodies. But actually in type one diabetes world, the antibodies are markers of this autoimmune process ongoing. So I suppose they're a negative, a negative sign. And children who have two of these antibody markers um, have an almost lifetime certainty of developing type one diabetes in the future. So you, you say two of them, does that mean that there's more than two of these markers? 
Yeah, so we have four sort of got markers that we use, four biomarkers of type 1 diabetes are in clinical practice. And usually when people are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, um, guidelines recommend that they have their autoantibodies checked at diagnosis because it helps us to differentiate between type 1 and type 2 diabetes if there's any uncertainty, which sometimes there is. It's not always as black and white, I think, as people think it might be. Um, but yes, um, now the antibody markers that... Um, so 90% of, of people at diagnosis will have antibodies. Um, so these are people developing type 1 diabetes. So there are 10% we know of that don't develop these antibodies at all. So we don't quite, we need to investigate this group of people further. But certainly the 90%, so the vast majority that do, are the ones who can benefit from screening. And screening is all about identifying a disease in an earlier disease state, hopefully when there's no symptoms or minimal harm has been done. And then I hope the ideal, uh, the ideal aspect of screening is uh, through intervention or treatment, you can better manage that condition possibly even prevent it um, and improve management for the future. So that's any screening programme is aiming to do that. In the type 1 diabetes world, we, we can screen, certainly. Obviously, the prevention is, is, uh, is around the corner, we hope. Uh, I, I shouldn't probably say that. Um, prevention is, is the dream of one day of preventing type 1 diabetes. And I think the diabetes research field is very exciting the way it's moving forward. Um, but in order to uh, prevent the disease, we need to identify people at high risk. And that's where the autoantibody testing as a screening test comes in. So I think that if in my lifetime of living with type 1, I've seen lots and lots of research being focused towards the cure. Does this mean that with modern immunotherapies coming out that we might be moving to a world where we actually look more to prevent because we've already identified in our conversation that we don't know what these triggers are and what the causes are. But if we could actually prevent the development of it, would that be likely a, a better candidate for a, a treatment modality, a treatment therapy than the constant quest for a cure that we've seen historically? Yeah, well, the NHS mantra is prevention is always better than cure. And I think in the type 1 diabetes world, there's always been a, a huge onus on trying to identify that cure. It's, um, it's an incredibly challenging condition, type 1 diabetes. You know, it, it requires so much from the patient. And I really believe there's very few conditions that ask quite so much of, of people living with it as type 1 diabetes does. I mean, if I, I think about my practice as a doctor and, you know, we might ask a, a patient to take a tablet once a day, twice a day, you know, four times a day. But actually, if you're asking a patient to take insulin every time they eat something or, you know, substantial carbohydrate portion, if you're asking them to do a dose calculation every time they eat something, that's a huge ask, I think. It's, it, it's a burden on, on everybody who lives with, with the condition. And I think the dream, the dream has always been if you could alleviate that or if you could alleviate some of the burden of type 1 diabetes, 
that that's that's the dream that's what we're working towards and I think you mentioned earlier Paul that you know technology is certainly um there's a lot of work going on in that sector to alleviate burden but if you could prevent the condition so you know prevent a person needing insulin perhaps even by a few years that's that's where we're at that's what we're moving towards I should say and the cure is a little bit further away and I know we keep saying the cures around the corner and we keep waiting for it I think I think we're in exciting time I think in in type 1 diabetes world we're embracing immunotherapies so um, immunotherapies are they aim to dampen down the immune system to to prevent that um if there is that environmental contribution that arises it's trying to prevent the autoimmune process that ensues um so we are we're we're moving closer towards that so I, I The point I picked up there was dampen down the immune system. And I think it's important to point out that dampening down the immune system is not the same as taking an immunosuppressant that you would take if you were a transplant patient, for example. And so if I've, again, I may be very mistaken, immunotherapy is not my field, but if I've understood the papers that I've been reading, that what we're talking about is almost like turning the volume down on the immune system rather than turning the volume off. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So the, the sort of immunosuppression you're, you're talking about in patients with either severe inflammatory disease or, you know, certain cancers, it, it wipes out the immune system completely. It's a non-targeted response. However, we're not talking about that in type 1 diabetes. What we're talking about is therapies that target a very specific part of the immune system that is known to be implicated in the autoimmune process of type 1 diabetes. So these are, they're called monoclonal antibodies. So they they have this very targeted response and that reduces the numerous side effects that we know and associate with normal immunosuppression. We don't see those adverse events um, in, in, in these immunotherapy agents that we're trialing. So this brings us nicely back to the ELSA study. I think, you know, we, we, we've got therapies that are being trialled, uh, kind of turning the volume down on the immune system. So then I think we arrive at a place where when these ther- therapies come online, and I think we've seen some good work coming out of uh, various parts of the world. And I, I did see some big papers coming out of Germany where they were showing this. Once we get these therapies licensed, which is likely to happen very soon I think um, then we need to know who to give the therapy to and am I right in thinking that's partly where ELSA is going to come in? Absolutely so the ELSA study stands for early surveillance for autoimmune diabetes so it's screening children aged from 3 to 13 years and any family living in the UK is eligible to take part if they have a child in that age range and it's, it's screening the general population. So the reason we're doing this is, although I spoke earlier about family members and this family history and genetics, increased risk of type 1 diabetes, actually um, the children who develop type 1 diabetes, 90% don't have any family history of the condition. So it's a, it's a disease that arrives completely out of the blue. And um, so that's where general population screening comes in. And what we mean by that is potentially screening every single child uh, at 
in that age range for the for antibodies and if, if we once we've identified those children at high risk and um, that the numbers of those children will be 0.3 percent so what that translates to is three in a thousand children will have these high risk antibodies and be at risk of diabetes type 1 in the future and um, so though those 0.3 percent of children once you've identified them, the benefits of screening are you can follow them up over time. So you can do repeat antibody testing, repeat glucose uh, tolerance testing, um, because the, the, we do the oral glucose tolerance tests to look at the stage of the type 1 diabetes. So what we know is as, as the child approaches a type 1 diabetes diagnosis, there will be damage to the beta cells, they get start to get reduced insulin production, um, and, and that will be showcased in an oral glucose tolerance test. They might not need insulin right away, but at least if you've identified that population that are nearing diagnosis, you can almost smoothen the landing uh, rather than it suddenly, you know, a child. What traditionally happens is a child becomes very unwell over a period of a few weeks, um, thirst, passing urine all the time. They lose all this weight, um, totally lethargic. Um, they, they may have gone to the GP, they may not. Um, and then some children, about, about one in four children, go into hospital as an emergency presentation with diabetic ketoacidosis. And this is where their blood sugars are so high that they need to go on a drip for insulin. And if there is a mortality associated, so a death rate associated with DKA. So we are trying to prevent children from developing diabetic ketoacidosis at diagnosis. And we can do that by smoothening that diagnosis, identifying it sooner, getting them onto insulin treatment sooner, and also giving more support to the family. So giving them the information they need to prepare for that diagnosis in the future. So I think those are some of the main benefits of screening. So I, I think that, for me, there were a couple of things that came out. You mentioned getting children onto insulin sooner. So does that have a protective effect on the beta cells that they have? Oh, I see what you mean. Unfortunately not. We don't have evidence of that yet. I suppose by sooner, we mean not that the child's in DKA, you know, that they've not got that so, late, but we so, can control it. So uh, that's a little bit different then, because I think in type 2 diabetes, we see that putting people onto insulin sooner protects them. Um, so I was just wondering whether there was a similar uh, experience in type 1. But, but the other thing that I wanted to bring out is that we typically see children being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and it, it becomes an emergency situation. It's what we what you clinically would call an acute situation. But the destruction of the beta cells hasn't happened overnight or very, very quickly. I, if I, again, if I've understood the data that I've read, it's happening over months or perhaps even years before you actually see this uh, type 1 diabetes presenting in clinic. And again, I think that, that comes back, if I've understood this correctly, that comes back to this idea that perhaps this infection that you've had of chickenpox or, or whatever it is, may not actually be wholly to blame. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. It's, again, it contributes to the complexity of type 1 diabetes. And yeah, so whether it's multiple factors, having additive effects over time, 
but absolutely the, the the best form of insulin is the insulin that your body produces and the reason I say that is you have a homeostasis you know your body is designed to know how much sugar and how much insulin you need so actually if the more if we can preserve those beta cells either in children who are nearing diagnosis or even in those who are newly diagnosed, there are there are immunotherapy trials in that cohort as well to try and preserve whatever beta cell function they have remaining. If we can get that, if we can um, preserve it for longer, there's reduced risk of hypoglycemia, particularly severe hypos, because they they don't have that risk of of, of their glucagon plummeting and them going into a severe high. So yes, beta cell preservation. If, you, if you've, you know, you may already have had the immune hit. You may have already had the environmental contribution and the genetic contribution. But let's let's work with what we've got and preserve it as long as possible. And that's a yeah another another aim of immunotherapy. So you've got Elsa. So if I again, if I've understood correctly, it was it's a two stage study. So I think you've completed the first stage which was about consultation. Um, so you're moving on to a second stage, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So the ELSA study, um, ELSA 1 was interviews with families, parents, children and stakeholders to understand perspectives around screening for type 1 diabetes. And we also ran through our proposed screening programme to get feedback at every stage. Uh, so it's been immensely enlightening for us, you know, to really talk about some of the issues and how we can address them. Um, so that was the first stage, yes, like you say. And then the second stage is the launch of the main ELSA study and uh, we've actually just launched uh, a soft launch in the West Midlands for a few families and the study will launch uh, more formally in September to, to families living in the West Midlands and then we'll be launching it uh, nationally around hopefully around the four regions in time for World Diabetes Day uh, this year in 2022. Wow that's a fast rollout. Yes yeah, so yeah we're going for it we've got to be we've got to meet World Diabetes Day. <laughs> So if I wanted to take my children along to be screened, how would I do that? Would I talk to my GP? Would I need to speak to a specialist somewhere? Yeah, so we have an online, we have our study website, we have an online consent process, you can contact the study team nine to five Monday to Friday, happy to answer any questions that families have about the study. Um, and then you may hear about the study in different places, you might hear about it on social media, through your GP, through a text message, perhaps through your children's school, we will be sending letters out to parents. So it's broad based community recruitment. And then um, if you decide to enroll your child on the study, uh, the first step is it's a screening test with a dried blood spot. So it's a finger pricker that we'll, we can send out to you in a home testing kit if you wish. Um, and then it's five spots of blood onto a little card and then you post it back to us in a prepaid kit and then we analyze it for antibodies. Now, if you don't want to do the home testing option, there's also rollout to schools and general practices. This will expand gradually as the time goes on. So have a look on our website for which, uh, which sites are open for that. So if, if I was to enrol my children into the study and they get a positive antibody result, what happens next? 
Yeah, so if there's a positive antibody result on that first screen, our first step is to ring the family and let them know. And we would invite the family to bring their child back for a, a venous confirmation. Uh, a venous blood test is the gold standard for autoantibody testing. And um, we wouldn't want to do that on every child that we're screening because it's a more invasive test. So that's why we're doing the dried blood spot finger prick in the first instance. But then once we've done the venous testing, we can tell of the four antibodies that we're testing for, that will tell us which of those are positive, which are negative. And any child who has two of these antibodies that are positive or more, we will invite them back for the staging of type 1 diabetes. And this is the oral glucose tolerance testing, where we're basically trying to find out how close to needing insulin that child is, or even if they need insulin straight away. And we may identify some children in that situation. So I think that one of the things we probably should cover if anybody's watching this and they don't have a background in diabetes or diabetes testing, let's just talk about what oral glucose tolerance testing is, because it's got a, a, a really long name and it could sound like it's really quite invasive. But actually, if you can just explain it, I think it's quite simple. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's basically looking at your balance between glucose and insulin. So in the body, as your glucose goes up, your body starts to release that insulin. And the insulin is like the key allowing the glucose to get into the cells so that it can be broken down and used for energy. So in a perfect homeostasis situation, so someone without diabetes, the, as the glucose goes up, the insulin matches it completely. In someone with type 1 diabetes or even type 2 diabetes, perhaps, but let's stick with type 1, as their glucose goes up, their insulin won't go up as much. And in an oral glucose tolerance test, the first blood test we do is we just measure um, the fasting glucose. So we're looking if you haven't eaten overnight, you're not allowed to have any breakfast. We'll test your, your sugar in the morning uh, to see is, is there basically is your body not producing enough insulin in the fasting state? Um, so that, that's the first test. And then we will give you a sugary drink. Um, and, and basically that's a measured kind of glucose load. And then we want to see how your body manages a glucose load. So how much insulin is it able to produce to bring that glucose down to the level we want it to be at in normal range? So then we've got these two broad figures that we can look at and we can analyze is diabetes present if both of these figures are, are high, higher than they should be? Is one higher than the, than the other or are they normal? And that's what we're looking at. You can get any range of results when you do this in a child who's at risk with antibodies and you're looking for type 1 diabetes. Um, but yes, in children, we're going to use a cannula rather than lots of blood tests. And, and we will use the creams and agents to, to reduce the pain and discomfort. So I think that the other point here is that let, let's just go back a little bit to the benefits, because so far it sounds, you know, we, we've spoken a little bit about the benefits, but this all sounds like it's quite a trauma for the parents, quite a trauma for the for the child. So yeah. tell us, you know, if if I didn't have a connection to type one diabetes, why would I take my child to this? You know, this, this sounds quite scary to me. No, definitely, definitely. And I, I think it, it, it's, it's a shock, you know, whether you have type 1 diabetes in the family or not, 
to know your child is is at high risk we appreciate the the the, the stress the the distress you know the worry that must go through a parent's mind and we do appreciate that you may be living with that knowledge of risk for many years you know a child could have these antibodies and be perfectly fit and well for 10 15 years or even more um you know before they go on to develop type 1 diabetes so we we do appreciate that that there is a burden there for the family and our job is to support the family through that process you know so through the monitoring you know that that kind of fine tuning and and checkups over time i think that's one way we can help reduce that kind of sense of burden um knowledge of the symptoms i think it's really important that everyone is aware of the symptoms of type 1 diabetes that I think they can be quite non-specific, which makes it challenging. You know, if your child's drinking more, is that because it's 31 degrees outside? Is it has been last week? Or is that is that type one diabetes? So I think at least knowledge of the symptoms, you're better equipped. Um, and then I think, yes, if you've got high risk children and the, the benefit we didn't talk about earlier was you can then offer families prevention trials so these are these are usually randomized controlled trials so they have a placebo element arm to them so like a salt water and that's to compare whether a new treatment is effective compared to a, a salt water placebo or equivalent um, and and unfortunately that's so that's the only way really we can demonstrate in a in a clinical setting whether a treatment is effective or not so um we we would we can invite families to role in these studies testing these new treatments um so so prevention trials is is one one benefit but just as you said paul as well and um, there is an, an agent that is due for a licensing decision uh, next year in the uk and, and later this year in the us and that is teplizumab which was a trial by herald group in the us um so this that's the closest perhaps we are to having a, tr a treatment that may be licensed obviously we still don't know the outcome we need to wait and see and once it is licensed then we need to decide who we're going to give it to um, and I think that's where screening comes in and screening is a really important research area to, to contribute to that prevention landscape. So I think that if I again not my area of expertise at all but this uh, topluzumab it's not a new drug it's been around for a very long time. It's been used for other autoimmune conditions. I think if, I've under, if, if it's the drug, I think it is, it was used for psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what we have is good data to show that it's safe and effective on autoimmune conditions. So this isn't some kind of new experimental drug that's out there for, that's gonna be used on your child because they may go on to develop type one. So I think that's probably, I know it's not the area that you're working on, but something we need to address quite quickly. Um, and um, I think that the other thing that for me is worth pointing out, and this is because of my personal experience, I was diagnosed at the age of five. My I'm the only person in my family with type one diabetes and long may it remain that way. But my diagnosis was missed. And so I was one of those children presenting with diabetic ketoacidosis, I was admitted to hospital in a coma and I, my parents were told that I was not likely to make it until the morning. 
And I think that the big benefit that we have here in terms of screening is that we're less likely to see that. Now, you could argue that GPs should be seeing this kind of symptoms, but it's worth remembering that statistically, GPs do not diagnose type 1 diabetes very often. I think I saw some data somewhere that suggested it was once in their entire career. And so GPs are not automatically thinking this child's presenting to me with type 1 diabetes. And you could argue against GPs and, and, and say that they should be, but I was looking at some research for something else that I was doing and it was a a paper from Australia and they were saying that a GP needs an in-depth metabolic knowledge of 165 different diseases to treat 85% of the cases that they will, the the top 85% of cases that they will see walk through their door. But type one diabetes isn't in that top 85% of cases. We're only about half a percent of the population. So, For me, I think this screening gives an opportunity to actually have an early warning system that we need to keep a closer eye. And then the GP and the primary care facilities can be alerted to look. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I think uh, what we know is type 1 diabetes is a difficult condition to diagnose. And and, and some people say it shouldn't be, but I think actually the symptoms can be very nonspecific. And, you know, particularly during COVID, when there were a lot of virtual consultations and you couldn't just do a urine dip on your child, you know, that that, that did contribute to to, to the challenges they faced. But in order for, for us to support GPs with this screening process, any any family whose child goes through ELSA we will inform the GP of of the antibody results and we're actually doing some other work and to look into coding for this for pre-symptomatic type 1 diabetes so children that have these antibodies and are at risk of it in the future we're developing a looking to develop a code with the NHS so that can go into the child's medical record is our hope so that then if there's a consult in the future that's information a GP or any medical practitioner can use and might just help them to bring type 1 diabetes a bit more to the forefront and perhaps more top of the differential diagnosis list and they know to screen for it and they know to yeah to to investigate for it so yeah anything we can do to support GPs in that setting and and screening is is a huge part of that and I like this idea of the soft landing you know we the last thing that we want to see is any child well anybody being diagnosed in DKA Uh, and I think that the benefits of this soft landing mean less trauma all round and less risk. Yeah, yeah. And I think we need a bit more evidence to demonstrate that because I think we're, we're, we're changing the, the diagnosis, you know, we're changing the time of the diagnosis. And, and of course, there's pros and cons to that. I think some families would just rather, you know, rather have a healthy child and not know about any risk of, of a condition in the future. But for other families, they would want to know that risk because then they feel like they can do something about it, whether that's monitoring follow up, whether that's looking into prevention 
intervention trials, whether that is, you know, just healthy lifestyle, you know, although although that doesn't prevent type one diabetes, all children, you know, need need a healthy, healthy lifestyle uh, for, for health in the future. So um, we hope there will be positives that come out of screening. And we would like to convey a positive message from it that we, we want to develop the support, we want to develop the educational materials for families who do have a child at risk so that we can better prepare the family and the child or young person for the future. That's absolutely wonderful. So um, we, we've, I think we've covered a, an awful lot here. So in summary, let, if you can just again tell us a little bit uh, that, that sort of, if I want to get my child screened through ELSA, how do I do it? Where do I go? And how do I contact you? And perhaps I can put your website up on the uh, video when we broadcast it. Absolutely, yes. So you, you can find us. We are the Elsa Diabetes Study. So you can Google that. Um, so we have our study website with all the information on there. You can register for the study on the website, or if you've got any questions, please get in touch with the study team by email or by phone. We're more than happy to answer any questions that you have. Uh, we do have a nice animation, so a little video on the website that gives a, a broad overview of the study. And then we have an online information tool as well that talks you through each of the steps I went through in a little bit more detail. Um, but yes, we, we, we hope that we would love families to come forward to get their child screened, whether they know anything about type 1 diabetes or not. Um, this is an opportunity for us to, to support you and to educate you about a really important condition. Um, and, also, and every family that takes part in ELSA is helping us to understand more about the condition as well. So we're immensely grateful for the families who, who do come forward for the research and like we say we're doing a national launch for world diabetes day later this year and um, but if you want to register your interest you can still do that on us on our website and on the consent form and then we can let you know when the study opens in your region and i think that one other thing we probably should just quickly cover is that the study at this time it, or the screening it isn't compulsory it's voluntary and people are volunteering to step forward and be tested if they feel that it's in the best interest of their child um, and, and so this is not a kind of a case of we're trying to gain a, a, a library of data about every child that's out there it, it, that those are not the intentions at all um, and what we're trying to do is to protect the population. Absolutely, Paul. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes, all research is entirely voluntary. You know, it's it's a it's a case by case basis. You know, it's about weighing up the risks and benefits and whether it's right for you, your family, for the parents and, and for the child as well. And um, so, yes, entirely voluntary. You can, of course, withdraw from the study at any time. It won't affect your care in any way, whether you do or do not proceed with the study. That's really important. Um, but and, and if if you're a, if you're a family, who have re real concerns about screening children for type 1 diabetes, we would actually still be really keen to hear from you because actually understanding your concerns and particularly 
for us to know if there's anything we could improve or address or any way we could alleviate those concerns that's really important for us and understanding the reasons why you might not want to get your child screened so yes even even if you if you don't wish to get your child screened please do come forward and and we, we would be delighted to talk to you more about it that's wonderful thank you um so unless there's anything else that we need to cover about the ELSA study then I is there any other points that you want to bring forward? Um, I was just going to say that the study is led by Professor Parth Narendran at the University of Birmingham. It's co-funded by Diabetes UK and JDRF. So huge thank you to our sponsors. And our sponsor is the University of Birmingham. And um, there's a huge team uh, behind the ELSA study that really I'm just representing today. Uh, but yes, a huge thank you to everybody who's been involved in the study. And particularly to the families and the young people who've helped us design and deliver the study. And will continue to do so over the next few years. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for your time.